Have you ever had a tune stuck in your head and struggled to figure out where it came from? I'm Stuart Holt, and today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, the discovery of a tune that solved a decades-long musical mystery. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Composers draw inspiration from a variety of places, but they don't always reveal their sources. In today's episode, we share the story of Puccini's long-lost source of inspiration in Madama Butterfly, discovered by Guild lecturer W. Anthony Shepard. The Guild's Naomi Baratera tells that story and explores more of the music in Puccini's sweeping drama. On March 5, 1900, David Belasco's play, titled Madama Butterfly, A Tragedy, made its world premiere at the Herald Square Theatre in New York City. Belasco's play was adapted from a short story by John Luther Long, which had originally been inspired by a story Long heard from his sister Jenny, who had lived for a time in Japan with her husband as a Methodist missionary. The play was quite popular and soon made its way to England, where it had its London premiere in the summer of that same year. At some point during its London run, Italian opera composer Giacomo Puccini was in the audience. He was inspired by the story and decided that it would be perfect material for his next opera. It took Puccini over a year to get the rights to the story, but he remained inspired and quickly began working with his librettist to sketch out the structure of the story. For those who are unfamiliar with the opera, the story of Madama Butterfly takes place in Nagasaki, Japan, at the beginning of the 20th century. The central character is a teenage girl named Chocho-san, or Butterfly. She is a geisha, and at 15 years old, she has fallen for an American Navy lieutenant, B.F. Pinkerton, and he has arranged for them to be married. Shortly after the audience meets Pinkerton, we learn that although he is enamored with Butterfly, he does not view the marriage as a real binding contract. 
he describes himself as a man who takes pleasure where he can find it and was thrilled to find a contract for a house that he could cancel at any time with just a month's notice. Sharpless, the United States consul in Nagasaki, says he hopes that Pinkerton will not hurt Butterfly and tells him that he believes Butterfly's love to be sincere and true. Pinkerton brushes off the serious nature of his words, eager for the marriage ceremony to begin. During the wedding festivities, Butterfly reveals that she has converted to Pinkerton's religion, much to the horror of her family. They curse her and leave her alone with her new husband. Pinkerton comforts her, and the first act ends with an incredible extended love duet between the newlyweds. Act two takes place three years later, and we learn that Pinkerton has left Butterfly, promising to return at some point, but the promise has remained unfulfilled for quite some time. Butterfly longs for Pinkerton's return, and this moment is punctuated by one of the most famous arias in Puccini's output, Un Bel Di. Here, Butterfly imagines what the day will be like when Pinkerton's ship pulls back into the harbor. She imagines what she will say to him, what he will say to her, and ends the aria with the emphatic belief that everything she has imagined will one day come to pass. Following this moment, Prince Yamadori comes to Butterfly and proposes marriage, but she refuses, holding strongly to her belief that she is already married and Pinkerton will return. He leaves in frustration, and Sharpless comes to try and convince her to accept the prince's marriage proposal. Butterfly reveals to him that she has a son by Pinkerton and will not betray him. Sharpless then tries to read Butterfly a letter from Pinkerton, stating his intentions to cut all ties with her, but Butterfly does not understand the true meaning of his words. Sharpless promises to pass on the news to Pinkerton of his son, and that Butterfly still awaits him. A cannon sounds, signaling the arrival of a ship in the harbor, and Butterfly is excited to learn that it is an American ship, and she prepares herself for Pinkerton's return. The next morning, Suzuki, who is Butterfly's maid, 
sees Sharpless and Pinkerton approaching along with an American woman. Sharpless informs Suzuki that the woman is named Kate and she is Pinkerton's American wife. He has told Pinkerton about Butterfly and his son, but Pinkerton still has no intention of returning to Butterfly. His only concern is that the child receives a good American upbringing. Pinkerton is overcome with remorse and he leaves, unable to face Butterfly. When Butterfly appears, the whole situation is revealed to her. She tells Sharpless, Kate, and Suzuki to return in 30 minutes. They leave and Butterfly says goodbye to her child before committing suicide by stabbing herself with her father's dagger or sword. The opera ends with Pinkerton calling her name, followed by a dramatic musical statement in the orchestra as the curtain falls. One of the musical elements in the score from Madame Butterfly that is a very obvious source of inspiration for Puccini is the quotation of the Star-Spangled Banner in Act One when we first meet Pinkerton. The Star-Spangled Banner is not the only pre-existing melody that provided a source of inspiration for Puccini and his creative process behind this particular opera. Puccini was also inspired by Japanese culture throughout the compositional process of this score, and the opera includes both quoted melodies from Japanese folk sources, as well as newly composed music by Puccini designed to evoke some kind of local or authentic Japanese sound, or at least what the Italian audiences of the early 20th century would have perceived as being local or authentic to Japan. In the words of Alexandra Wilson, quote, In preparation for composing Madame Butterfly, Puccini read voraciously about Japanese culture, had several meetings with the wife of the Japanese ambassador, attending performances of the Japanese Imperial Theatre on its tour of Italy in 1903. He incorporated a number of authentic Japanese folk songs into the finished score, made liberal use of the pentatonic scale, and employed exotic percussion instruments, including the tam-tam and Japanese bells." End quote. This is an area of research related to this opera that scholars are still exploring today, as new evidence and interpretations are still being explored in regards to how many folk songs are quoted by Puccini, where and how Puccini would have learned these melodies in the first place, and if there is any deeper level of interpretive meaning, either intentional or not, on the part of the composer, in terms of connecting the folk song's original text or meaning to its use within the opera. 
This topic is far too rich in scholarship to explore every single nuance of the debate today or to delve too deeply into the musical and interpretive analysis that exists for each folk song, but we do have time to introduce ourselves to some of the folk songs that Puccini used and begin to map out moments in the opera where these folk songs are quoted or integrated into the musical fabric of the score. And we are going to spend the majority of our time focusing on a new discovery that revealed an unknown folk song source behind one of the most important musical motives in the opera. So let's start by introducing ourselves to some of the Japanese folk songs quoted by Puccini in the score of Madama Butterfly, as well as hearing moments where those folk songs are alluded to or quoted within the flow of the music. Our first Japanese folk song is one that English-speaking audiences in Puccini's time would have recognized from the Mikado. This excerpt from Gilbert and Sullivan is based on the Japanese folk song called Miyasan. Here is an original rendition of the folk tune played by the Japanese traditional music ensemble. As Dr. Kunio Hara has explored in his research on this topic, this particular folk song is connected with the Boshin conflict in Japanese history, circa 1868 to 69, which is also connected to Japan's early trading history with the United States. Hara writes that the ending of the original folk song has an inconclusive sound to Western tonal ears, which allowed Puccini to weave the melody in and out of other music in a seamless flow. The appearance of this melody within the score is often connected with the character of Prince Yamadori, but not exclusively, which has led to some debate as to its meaning amongst scholars. Here is an example of a quoted moment in the score punctuating the arrival of the prince in Act 2. The next folk song we are going to listen to is quoted several times in different places within Madama Butterfly, and it is called Jitsukuta. 
Here is a piano rendition of the folk song played by Noriko Ogawa. There is a short moment of quotation from this folk song in the famous aria Un Bel Di, at this precise moment. most striking quotations of this folk song in the score is in the aria Que Tua Madre. And something I learned that is really interesting in relation to this aria when I was reading the work of Dr. Kunio Hara is that this particular aria is actually comprised of three different folk songs. And really what Puccini is doing is taking bits and pieces of these folk songs and remixing them into this aria structure. So now we're going to listen to an excerpt from this aria, Que Tua Madre, which focuses in on one of the longest quotations of the folk song, Jitskuta. And just to give you one more example, another really striking moment where this folk song is really a big part of the musical fabric is in between the moments at the very, very end of the opera where Pinkerton is yelling Butterfly's name. 
next folk song we're going to hear is called Sirio Bushi. And this is a folk song that is only quoted at two very specific moments in the score of Madama Butterfly, but it is really striking when it happens. This is also a song that John Luther Long included or referenced in his story of Madama Butterfly, published in 1898. So this is musical material that has been attached to the story before Puccini even saw Belasco's play. The text of the song translates to Joy of meeting, sorrow of parting, if only there were just meeting and no parting. In the opera, this is the third folk song that plays a prominent role in the creation of Butterfly's Que Tua Madre. The second place that you find this folk song integrated into the opera is at the very, very end, as this is the music that brings the curtain down after Butterfly's death.
The last folk song source we are going to talk about is actually connected to a fairly new discovery in 2012 by Dr. W. Anthony Shepard, a professor from Williams College in Massachusetts who is also one of our very own Guild lecturers. The story behind this discovery, which I'm about to share, was published in the New York Times in 2012 in an article written by Dr. Shepard himself titled, Music Boxes Muse to Puccini's Butterfly. The story goes that Dr. Shepard was browsing through the Morris Museum in Morristown, New Jersey, with his family when he came upon the museum's collection of Swiss music boxes. He lingered there, listening to the different tunes from different boxes long after his family had moved on, and there was one music box in particular that he kept going back to, listening to the tune and wondering where he had heard that music before, when suddenly it dawned on him. He recognized the melody from Puccini's Madama Butterfly. As he looked at the information given about the music box on the display, he realized that there was nothing mentioned about Madama Butterfly or Puccini. After extensive research, he came to the conclusion that he had stumbled upon a previously unknown source of inspiration in Puccini's composition. Here is a recording of the actual music box that Dr. Shepard kept coming back to, featuring the tune that caught his attention. The melody played by the music box is actually a really important musical theme within the opera. It is essentially Butterfly's theme, and it comes up several times in the opera, functioning almost like a leitmotif, or a particular musical moment strongly associated just with her. Scholars have long wondered where Puccini got that melody, but with no Japanese folk song that they could easily map it to, Scholars assumed that the melody was either an original composition or from some lost source. What made this discovery all the more interesting is that the music box indicated that the tune was from a Chinese folk song, not Japanese. Now, opera scholars know that Puccini utilized Chinese folk sources in his opera Turandot, but he was creating Madama Butterfly almost two decades earlier than that. So how did he come across this Chinese melody? Did Puccini actually come into contact with this exact music box now in the Morris Museum in New Jersey? Or did he learn the tune from another unknown source? With all of these questions in mind, Dr. Shepard began investigating. There was another music box that we know for sure Puccini had access to that contained the source of three Chinese folk songs later included in Turandot the story of which is set in ancient China. Puccini was friends with Baron Eduardo Fassini Camosi, who had fought in the 1900 Boxer Rebellion in China and most likely brought that other music box of Chinese melodies home with him. The most famous folk tune that we know Puccini quoted from this other Fassini Camosi music box is Mo Li Hua, 
which is a fairly popular folk song in China, so much so that it was used in the ceremonies of the 2004 and 2008 Summer Olympics. back to the music box in the Morris Museum, the music box was dated from 1877, and it's a harmonophone structure, which means that there's a reed organ set to play six different tunes off of a cylinder. The box had a track list of sorts included with it, and the melody that Dr. Shepard recognized from Madama Butterfly was labeled Shi Pa Mo. Research revealed that the melody was more commonly known in China as Shibamo, or translated meaning the 18 touches. The text is fairly erotic, so much so that it was once banned in China, as it is essentially narrated by a man as he talks all about the beautiful parts of a woman's body, going through all of these parts in fairly explicit detail. Shepard believes that Puccini likely discovered what the text meant, as the first time the melody is heard in the opera is when Butterfly is presented to Pinkerton at their wedding, and she actually sings the whole melody in the same key as in the music box itself. Let's listen to this moment. First, I'll play the music box melody again so that it's fresh in your ear, and then we'll go right into the middle of Act 1 when we first hear Butterfly sing the melody before marrying Pinkerton. This theme also comes back at the end of the love duet, and this is the very end of Act 1, and this is the big love duet between Pinkerton and Butterfly before they go off to celebrate their wedding night.
But the question still remains, did Puccini actually come in contact with this exact music box at the Morris Museum? Or did he come across these tunes in another way, and their collection in this music box be just coincidence? More research led to the belief that this was not coincidence at all and that Puccini actually had come into contact with this exact box. The music box in the Morris Museum has markings indicating that it was made by a Swiss mechanical company but was purchased or created for resale in a Shanghai department store. But it also had information accompanying it with the name of a repair shop in Rome, suggesting that it was at one point in Italy. As Dr. Shepard dug into the lineage of people who owned the music box before it ended up in the museum, it seemed more and more likely that the Fassini family also owned this music box at one point, and that that is how Puccini came into contact with it. When he was able to take the music box apart to look inside for more clues, Dr. Shepard found writing on an inner piece of wood within the box, accompanied by a sketch of a woman's head or portrait. Shepard believes the markings were put there by Puccini himself, further connecting the exact box to the composer. If you take the music box apart and look inside underneath the reed organ section, the bellows that are hidden otherwise, um, you find some strange writing on the bottom of the board. It looks like fake Chinese writing, some kind of fake Asian writing. And there's a picture of a woman very clearly drawn above this writing. And when I first saw this many months ago, I, I thought this can't have anything to do with the story, nothing to do with Puccini at all. Um, but I've, I've changed my mind because we know that Puccini liked to draw sketches and caricatures. And this summer I was looking at some of his manuscripts, some of his sketches of other works, and I started to notice that the markings on his score, the way he would draw quarter rests or accent marks or cross out a measure, suddenly it hit me that those markings in his scores look a lot like the markings in this fake Asian writing on the box. Mark right there, the way that he crosses out a measure to say that this measure... Shepard documented the music box's travels from Switzerland to Shanghai and then to a family in Rome, the Ficinis, who were friends of Puccini. And so my current theory is that um, Puccini knew Alberto Fassini, went to his house around 1902 or so and said, you know, I'm writing this opera about Japan, can't find enough tunes to use Japanese tunes. And Alberto said, well, you know, my brother just gave me this music box from China. And there's a letter Puccini wrote where he says, I now have enough material from the yellow race for my opera. I believe the yellow race actually refers to Asia more generally, and at that point he had heard these tunes on the music box and felt satisfied that he had enough to use. And as Shepard explored the circumstances of creation behind the music box, another fascinating story took shape in figuring out how an erotic song like the 18 Touches made it into the tune list. A violinist by the name of Fritz Beauvais, who also happened to be part of the Swiss family of Beauvais known for their watchmaking craft, was involved in expanding the business from watches to mechanical music boxes. And the song was part of Beauvais' collection of Chinese folk songs. 
This story of serendipitous discovery, as Dr. Shepard puts it, is one fascinating part of a much larger body of research into Puccini's source material in his Orientalist operas, really exploring and digging into the creative process behind his composing and the interpretive possibilities and connections between the source material and operatic themes. To dig deeper into this particular discovery story, I highly suggest reading Dr. Shepard's New York Times article. It was dated June 15, 2012, and as I said before, the title is Music Boxes Muse to Puccini's Butterfly. But there is also further research that was published a little bit later by Dr. Shepard in 2015 in the Journal of the Royal Musical Association, Volume 140, in an article titled Puccini and the Music Boxes. If you want to learn more about Puccini's use of Japanese folk songs in both Madama Butterfly and Turandot, there's a lot of fantastic sources that you can get a hold of. One of them is called Puccini, His Life and Works. This is by Julian Budden. It's part of the Master Musician series published by Oxford University Press. There's also The Exotic Element in Puccini, an article in the musical Quarterly by Moscow Karner. This was published in 1936, so an older article, but an important part of this particular area of research. There's also a critical biography that Karner published, and that was published in 1992, so more information by the same author. There is Puccini, His International Art, which is translated by Laura Bassini, originally written by Michele Girardi, and this is published by the University of Chicago Press in the year 2000. Kunio Hara, who I mentioned earlier, has done a lot of work in this area of Puccini research, so looking up some of the things that he has written will definitely get you on the right track. And you can also look into the Daisy Field Archive of Japanese traditional music. There's lots of information there about many, many folk tunes that are quoted in Madama Butterfly, many more than we could cover today. That being said, I hope the terrain that we did cover gives you some new insight into the compositional components of this work, a new perspective on some of the types of work musicologists and opera scholars do, digging for source material and trying to piece together compositional puzzles, and also some new things to listen for the next time you see or hear Madama Butterfly. That was Naomi Baratera talking about Puccini's Madama Butterfly and the work of music scholar W. Anthony Shepard. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at info at metguild.org. We always love hearing your thoughts, feedback, and questions. Until next time, I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you for listening.